Go ahead and find 1 Corinthians chapter 6 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians 6. Since uh, the very beginning of your Bible and, and nearly the beginning of the world, uh, the devil has been about the business of deception. In Genesis 3, he successfully deceived Eve into breaking the one command God had given. God had done everything possible to show that his word was trustworthy and that if he said something, it wasn't because he was being mean. It was because actually he was caring for the, for the beings that he made. But through a series of deceptions, the devil successfully convinced her to do something that destroyed her, her family, and the whole world. And if you think about it, it's really a remarkable achievement on the serpent's part to give the devil his due. How in the world do you convince someone to do something that ruins their lives? That's a tall task. And the answer is by deception, by skillful deception. Well, at the very end of your Bible, Satan is still acting in character. Revelation 12.9 calls him the deceiver of this whole world. And Paul expresses his concern that disciples will fall prey to Satan's deceptions just like Eve did. He says this in 2 Corinthians 11, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I am afraid as he deceived Eve, he will deceive you. Satan's mission is to get us to do things that are against the will of our good creator, things that destroy us. And the way he accomplishes this task is through deception. And so it's for this reason that I want to pay attention to a phrase that pops up a number of times in the New Testament that is this, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Every time you see this phrase pop up in your New Testament, we are being alerted to the fact that we are entering deception territory. Whatever it is this is said in reference to is something we tend not to take seriously. It's something we tend to overlook, something we tend to take for granted or say, yeah, 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 I got that, and then we don't got it. It's Paul's way of highlighting he's hitting on something about which people tend to be deceived. He's saying, don't take this for granted. Don't say, yeah, I already know this. Don't say, that's not a problem for me. When we take seriously these warnings, we'll be better equipped to avoid being deceived by Satan. So there are at least three times in the New Testament I want to pay attention to, things we tend to be deceived about that Paul underlines and says, do not be deceived about this. And I want to dig down into each of these, and I think we'll be better equipped uh, to, to resist Satan. So here's the first thing Paul says, don't be deceived about. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. Or do you not know, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this might seem obvious to us, and it seems like it should have been obvious to the Christians in Corinth, but the kingdom of God is not for the unrighteous. A holy God cannot be in fellowship with that which is unholy. This is what the book of Leviticus is about. God has been communicating this truth for a very long time. What is there to be deceived about here? Well, I think looking more closely at the context, uh, the context in which this is said unlocks the answer. I think it's a more interesting story than we tend to give it credit for, what it is Paul's getting at here. 
So in the paragraph that leads up to this statement, Paul is actually addressing the issue of brethren being at each other's throats to the extent that they're taking each other to court. And they're suing each other, and they're trying to use civil law to settle the score with their brethren. This is verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Uh, In verses 7 and 8 of this section, he'll use the word defrauded, which makes us think this has to do with economic disputes. So I I don't know the exact dynamics of this, but this is a very broad uh, imagining of what might have happened that I think is good enough for our purposes. So, you know, imagine John and Bill are both members of the church in Corinth. John lends lends Bill some money, but when Bill misses a payment, John takes him to court, suing him for breach of contract, and if convicted, Bill will be subject to fines, and in that day, he might be subject to imprisonment. This is the sort of thing that is happening in Corinth between church members. So here's what's happening. In their pursuit of justice, and the one who's taking his brother to court, and in his pursuit of quote-unquote justice, he's lost sight of some very basic Christian things. And if we look more closely at this paragraph, here's the things he mentions. In their pursuit of justice, they've lost sight, one, of our Christian witness to the world. Because squabbling in court with your brethren isn't much of an advertisement for the kingdom of God, is it? Isn't much an advertisement for, for the unity of the church, for the family of God being this one new people you know, cohesive people. So in doing all this, they lost sight, of their, lost sight of their Christian witness to the world. They lost sight of basic Christian values like mercy and forgiveness. They're acting like Corinthians first and Christians second, which is the persistent problem in Corinth. The church is not acting like the church. They're not acting like brothers and sisters who formed a community that models the love and forgiveness of Christ. They're acting like greedy, cutthroat Corinthian businessmen obsessed with profits, obsessed with rights. That is the train of thought that leads us back to verse 9 in what Paul says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's his question. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And as important as verse 11... Such were this list of sins, this list of sinners, such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He says, Corinth, you have forgotten who you are. In acting this way, you've forgotten where you've come from and you've forgotten what happened to you that changed where you came from. You have forgotten that you are objects of God's mercy. You have been redeemed from sin, the sins of verses 9 and 10. You have been freed from the bondage sold Satan holds us under through sin. You have been forgiven a great debt. You owed God. This is what he's getting at. So what does it say? When once redeemed, we return to these sins. What does it say? When once forgiven the debt we owe Christ, we insist on extracting every cent owed to us from our brethren under threat of law. What does it say about us and our understanding of our redemption? Haven't you forgotten? Don't be deceived. See, I think this is a more interesting story than we typically give this credit for. See, quoted out of context, verses 9 and 10 are sort of a generic reminder that we need to be good little boys and girls or else. But in context, it's really a warning to these litigious Christians that in their pursuit of sort of cold, hard justice, they've forgotten their own justification. 
In their pursuit of what's quote-unquote right, in this case what's right is me getting every cent owed to me by my brethren. In my, in my pursuit of what's right, ironically, you're acting unrighteously. The deception is in the sort of black and white approach that says, hey, right is right, you borrowed this money, you pay it, and if you don't pay it, there's courts for this. And ironically, it's in that pursuit of rights that they're acting most unrighteously. That person, the person running down his brother in court, that person is as guilty and unrighteous as the sexually immoral, as the idolater, as the adulterer, as a practitioner of homosexuality, as the thief, etc., So he's saying, don't be deceived, Mr. Lawsuit Bringer against your brother. Don't be deceived. You think you're right, but you're wrong. Your idea of justice has lost sight of God's justice. Your pursuit of what's right is unrighteous, and the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. You are deceived about what's right here. So the message to us is, don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. I do think that needs to be applied in a more generic way without getting lost in the, in the story we've, we've tried to reconstruct. The sins he lists in verses 9 and 10 are sins that separate us from God. They make us unworthy of his kingdom. They make us unfit to be in the presence of a holy God. And one of them will separate us from God as well as any of the others. So several in this list in verses 9 and 10 have to do with sexuality. There's sexual immorality, there's adultery, and there's homosexuality. There are sins that relate to what our highest loyalties are, idolatry, which I don't think is restricted merely to bowing down before a statue, but it's to elevate anything. It doesn't matter much what it is. It's to elevate anything to supreme place of importance in your life that's not God. That's idolatry. There are things related to money, like greed, which is, I think, really an on-the-nose thing for this situation. There's that which relates to alcohol, the drunkards. There are the deceivers, the thieves and swindlers. And then there's one that relates to the tongue, the reviler. Verses 9 and 10 say sin is real, sin is common, and sin is always soul-condemning. And we need to just sort of nail those things down and not be deceived about that because you will not get this message from the world who won't even use the word sin to describe anything. You won't even get that message from any pulpits. But don't be deceived. A God who is okay with unrighteousness means you have a false God. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. But before we move on, let me just nail down one more, the more on-the-nose, in-context application of these verses. We can pursue an idea of righteousness in unrighteous ways. We can pursue an idea of what's right in an unrighteous way. We're owed money, which can be viewed in a very black-and-white, right-and-wrong sort of way. There's a ledger, I'm owed, and the person who owes me should pay. Fair enough. But then we go about upholding that quote-unquote right in a very wrong way. And so we take our brother to court. And in the process, we ruin the witness of the church. And we show a low opinion of the church leaders to resolve issues. And we say to the world, hey, God's people can't handle our business. You please handle our business. You have more wisdom than us. Paul says, what a great message that is. And ultimately, he says, we've forgotten the heart of the gospel, which is that we are all debtors who have been forgiven by God. Remember, that's the story you're a part of, verses 9 through 11 says. And that'll help resolve your issues in the church in Corinth. So don't be deceived. 
The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And sometimes unrighteous people think they're being righteous. So that brings us to number two. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals or corrupts good morals. This is 1 Corinthians 15 now. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33. There's another great, great line here that's often taken out of its context, but I think when put back in, it makes, makes the point more illuminating and interesting. This is 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33. Do not be deceived, he says. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So this is a line often quoted just as sort of a a warning, a general warning about our friends and about the influences that we choose. And there is a lot of wisdom there. It's a great verse to just take out of its context, and there's a lot of wisdom in it. It's been said before, show me a person's five best friends. Let's say uh, I never meet you. I just meet your five best friends. And if I get to know your five best friends, I will have a very accurate picture of you, of your morals, of your character, of the kind of person you are, and I know that simply by the company you keep. Also notice this. There's an inevitability about this, about this line in verse 33. It doesn't say bad company can corrupt good morals. Bad company might or might not corrupt good morals. Paul says bad company does corrupt good morals. There's no uncertainty or, or exemption contemplated here. This is a fact. It's inevitable. But let's again notice this line appears... In a context, he doesn't just out of nowhere say, "Oh, I need to say this proverb I randomly thought of." He means something in the in the in the argument he's making. So the context in this chapter is this is the great chapter in First Corinthians on the resurrection. First, it's about the resurrection of Christ, but then it's about our own resurrection, which follows the pattern of Christ's resurrection. And the reason this is such a strong emphasis for Paul is that Corinth had adopted ways of thinking that were more Corinthian than Christian. Another application of what was happening in chapter 6. They're acting like Corinthians before they're acting like Christians. And one of the ways that played itself out was in their attitude toward the body and toward the resurrection. So this is uh, verse 12, verse 15 and verse 12. This is the presenting problem. This is what he's addressing, why he has to go to all this trouble to talk about the resurrection. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, and of course that's exactly what we proclaim, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, here's his question. How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, this is a a really big discussion, but I'm just going to give my quick summary on why I think they were saying this. What did they mean by that? Many Greek worldviews had a very low view of the body, and a low view of physicality, physical existence. You had groups like the Epicureans, who viewed the physical world and our bodies as either corrupt or totally unimportant, and to them salvation meant transcending physical existence for the disembodied soul to break free from its bodily prison. The Greek philosopher Plutarch insisted the soul could attain to the realm of the gods only by freeing itself of attachment to the senses. This is what he said. It must become pure, fleshless, and undefiled. I think this brings to life what happens in Acts 17. Do you remember when Paul is preaching in Athens, in the heart of this Greek philosophy? And he's talking here about Jesus, and they're very interested. He's saying some very interesting things and putting things together in a way they find very appealing. But the moment he mentions the resurrection of Jesus at the Areopagus, they begin to mock. And they say, okay, we're done with this. 
Literal physical resurrections were silly to the Greeks. It totally contradicted their, their view of things. What seems to have happened is that some Corinthians, and I'll remind you, Corinth is on the Greek peninsula. It's just like south of, of Athens. Some Corinthians had imbibed philosophies like these and begun to scoff at the idea of a little res- literal resurrection, first Jesus's and then ours. And what may have happened is that, you know, you wonder, well, how could you still be a Christian without believing in the resurrection of Christ, which is the question Paul's driving at in this chapter. What seems to have happened is they'd sort of reinterpreted. They'd filtered the idea of resurrection through their sort of philosophy. They said something like this, you know, the resurrection of Jesus is just a wonderful metaphor, wonderful metaphor for the spiritual change God brings about in our lives. Symbolizes the power of the spirit that we experience. But the the resuscitation of of the body, that's, that's silly. It is really against that backdrop that verse 33 lands. So verse 33 again. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Now actually, this is a line Paul is quoting here. I have a footnote in my Bible. It's quoted from a play by an ancient Greek playwright named Menander. And Paul quotes that line to say, you know, this proverb Corinth has rung true for you. Rather than to be a light of the world by proclaiming the risen and reigning Christ, which is what we should have been doing, what you have done is swallowed down the philosophy of the world, and that has led to your moral ruin. You want to be sophisticated like your Greek neighbors instead of embracing the crucified and risen Christ. That is why you're so immoral like the rest of Corinth. Verse 34, the next line. Verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He says, your bad company, your bad influences you have let let in your ears, they have ruined you. You have thought bad things and then you have started to do bad things as a result of your bad thinking. So here's what I think the deception really is here. The deception is, thinking you can be fully Corinthian and fully Christian at the same time. Thinking you can adopt a sort of in-fashion view of things, an in-fashion worldview, while at the same time having a thoroughly Christian worldview. Yes, I can go along. I don't have to be thought silly by anyone. I can affirm everything my culture affirms, and I'm also a very good Christian. Paul says, no, you kind of have to pick one. The deception is thinking you can interpret God's word through the world's lens, instead of the other way around, interpreting the world through God's lens. The deception is thinking that contemporary fashions of thought can redefine God's unchanging word. He says, no, Christ is risen, no matter what the Greeks have to say about that. Christ is risen, and that's fundamental to our faith. So don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Let's think about how we apply this You know, if we think we can inundate ourselves with faithless voices without adopting their view of things, if that's what we think, we're the deceived ones. We're kidding ourselves. Uh, I read we spend roughly 80% of our working hours, uh, of our waking hours, engaged in some some sort of communication. So about 12 hours a day, we are involved in some sort of communication. Of course, that means we talk to people and we listen to people talking, but not just that. Communication is also the media that we consume, the voices that we listen to on, on television, on radio, on podcasts, or whatever. It's what we read, 
the books, the magazines, the newspapers, the blogs, the websites we read. All of these are communication. We spend, we spend about 12 hours a day in, involved in some sort of communication. And the proverb of verse 33 says, if the company you keep, if the voices you listen to are bad, they're going to make you just as bad as them. Their tinted lens will be what you begin to look through to see everything. Their take on the world will become your take on the world. The way they tend to view things is the way you tend to view things. The assumptions they hold and interpret everything with are the assumptions you will begin to adopt and interpret everything with including, by the way, God and his word. You'll use their view of things as the basis on which you view God's word. All of a sudden, resurrection becomes something other than what God meant. So just as it's true, I I think just as it's true, if I knew your five closest friends, I could size you up very well without ever meeting you, and you could do that about me. Just as that's true, it's also the case that if you could just tell me what you spent your time consuming... I could tell you basically everything you believe in, everything that you value, and you could do it about me too. Right? If I could just know what it was you spent those 12 hours, what voices you spent listening to those 12 hours, I could tell you what you believe in, what you hold most precious, what you are most afraid of, what your worldview is. So here's the diagnostic question. What are the last 10 books you've read, or the last 10 magazines or newspapers you've read? What are the last 10 movies you've watched? What have the last 40 hours of TV you've watched been? What are the last last 10 podcasts you've listened to? The last 10 blogs you've read? Tell me those, and I'll have a very good idea where your head's at. Now, this is also to turn it into a more positive argument. It's an argument for more time spent in God's Word and more time spent with God's people, of course. Because if bad company ruins good morals, then what in the world could make good morals, could create good morals? Well, the answer is good company would do that. I can, I can tell you this. Looking in my own life, the times where I have grown the most spiritually is times when my influences have all been the most godly. When I was surrounded by godly peers, when I was engaged in what was happening in the church, really engaged with what was happening, when I was actually reading my Bible, when, spirit, and when I read my Bible and read spiritual things more than I watched the news, These were the times in which my faith actually began to grow. What Paul is saying, whatever you do, don't think you can consume the world's voices indiscriminately without starting to think like that world. That is a deception Satan uses to trick us. Don't be deceived about this. Bad company ruins good morals. Which brings us to number three. Third and finally, Don't be deceived about this. You will reap what you sow. This is Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, and start with me in verse 7. Galatians 6 and verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So Paul sets forth here something like a law. 
Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. This is, by the way, uh, a line of thinking that appears over and over again. It appears in, it's really an underpinning of the Proverbs and, and uh, lots, of, lots of places. Uh, this is a law much like the law of gravity. You might not think about it all the time. You might not even like it. You might wish it were not the case. But the law just is. Gravity just is. And this law of sowing and reaping just is. A farmer sows seeds, and those seeds will always produce a fruit that corresponds to what's sown. This is not hard stuff. You don't sow tomato seeds and then get watermelons. You reap exactly what you've sown. And it would be a very poor farmer who is frustrated because he had planted tomato seeds, but then was mad because he didn't get watermelons. You reap what you sow. And just to illustrate this in a bunch of different ways to show you how true this is, this is just a law that holds true in every facet of life. This is true in our health, right? If we decide we're just going to eat a lot of junk food all day every day and never exercise, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to be really unhealthy. And your organs are going to suffer and you're going to have a whole host of physical problems. And you might say, well, I don't like that. I don't want it to be that way. I wish I could eat whatever I want and then have, no cons- and then have perfect health. Yeah, we all would. But that's not the way the world works. We reap in health what we've sown. This is true in our finances. If you decide to spend more money than you have or borrow more money than you could ever pay back, you're going to be in financial trouble. And we all say, well, I don't want that to be the case. I should be able to have everything I want without any financial consequence. Join the club, but that's not the way it works. If you have sown the seeds of financial irresponsibility, you're going to reap a harvest in keeping with that. This is true in our relationships. If I have a friendship, but then I never talk to my friend, I never check on them, never communicate with them, what becomes of that friendship? It's not much of a friendship, is it? If I have a marriage, and I, but I ignore my wife for long periods of time and never talk to her, never spend time with her, scarcely acknowledge she exists, what kind of marriage will I have? If I don't invest anything in my relationships, I shouldn't be surprised when I don't have good relationships, right? We're sowing a crop in what we do, and then we reap the consequences of that sowing at a later date. But what Paul is getting at is, this is most profoundly true in our spiritual lives, and the bigger view you take on your life, the more profoundly true it becomes. Verse 8 again, Galatians 6 and verse 8, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And then he adds this encouragement, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. What we sow now, we reap in eternity. How we live now, we'll reap the fruit of later. The way that we're living, whatever it is we're doing in our lives, is sowing some sort of seed. And whatever kind of seed that is, is what will grow up later, and especially in eternity, that fruit will come in big time. What we're sowing now will have everything to do with what happens to us later. What you and I choose to do today matters much, much later. Those crops are going to come in. Verse 8 has sort of an ominous tone to it, but verse 9 has an encouraging tone. Verse 9 is an assurance to God's people who are trying to do a lot of sowing, a lot of good sowing, but without seeing immediate results. The danger is in discouragement. I'm doing all this work and nothing is coming of it. To which he says, listen, we will reap if we do not give up. The danger is in walking away before the crop comes in, presumably because we don't think it's going to come in. I'm not sure this is worth it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure this is doing any good. Does this matter? Paul says it does matter. It all matters. So to return to our line in verse 7, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. You'll reap what you have sown. 
what is there to be deceived about here? This all seems so logical. Well, the answer is, we just often don't want to believe this is true. We, deep down in our hearts, want to be able to sow one thing and reap another. We really wish that could be the way it works. Right? We all, deep down, want to sow a sedentary life and reap fitness. We wish that was how it worked. We want to sow overspending and debt, without, but at the same time reaping wealth. We want that. We want to sow selfishness, but then reap healthy relationships. We want to sow a life that's about me, but at the same time reap the blessings of God. And Paul says, not a one of those works. What, what he's saying here, don't be deceived is that we need to think really hard and always connect the dots between what we're doing now and what we'll reap from that investment later. We need to be long-term thinkers. We need to always connect the dots between our actions now and the consequences later, especially the consequences in eternity. If we don't connect those dots, we are in for a rude awakening later when the crop comes in that we will will be very sorry that we have sown. So let me just give you a few examples. An older preacher, not Leon, but an older preacher that's not Leon, told me of a conversation once he had with a, a man in the church. Um, the, man who, the man was about 65 years old, and for some reason he decided what he'd really like to do is to become an elder of the church, and he made it known. And they had to have an extremely uncomfortable conversation where it was pointed out to this man that he was expecting to reap a crop he had not sown. Because he had little Bible knowledge, because he hadn't really studied for any of his 65 years, and he hadn't managed his household well, and he had a reputation for being short-tempered and hard-headed. He had sown one thing and was expecting to reap another. And it's an uncomfortable realization to realize that. If we're sowing the seeds of neglecting the Bible, if we're sowing the seed of aloofness from the church, sowing the seed of uncommitted discipleship, sowing the seed of short-temperedness, it'd be ridiculous to expect we wake up one day magically spiritually mature and wise. It'd be ludicrous for a man like that to assume he'd be an elder. If as families we don't make God a priority in the home, we don't pray together, we don't make the spiritual a priority It'd be ridiculous to expect the next generation to have a faith we ourselves didn't have. We have to connect the dots between what we do today and what will happen as a result later. Or if as a church we're constantly at each other's throats or we're apathetic about the church or we don't stand for the truth in the church, it would be ridiculous to expect that God would be pleased with us and that we would have any kind of outcome God would be happy with if that's what we're selling. What we sow today, we'll reap tomorrow. Our actions, our habits, our priorities today determine what we will be tomorrow. But ultimately, what we sow now, in this age, on the earth, will reap in eternity, he says in verse 8. Don't be deceived about that. Don't think after sowing bad things, we'll reap good things. So deception is the devil's favorite tool in his bag of tricks. He is the deceiver of this whole world. As Paul said, I'm afraid as the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And along those lines, he is always warning his readers, please don't be deceived. Don't be be deceived about this. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins 
ruins good morals. That's you. You're not the exemption to that. That's always the case. And don't be deceived. You will reap what you have sown. That is an immutable law in our universe. And you're not an exception to that either. We are a people who profess to put God's will ahead of our own. We are a people who claim that the Bible is God's revealed word and will. So let's start living like we believe that. And let's stop being deceived by Satan into doing the opposite of that. Maybe there's someone here that realizes you have been deceived. You have acted like you are the exception to God's word. Like the warnings God gives us don't apply to us. Yeah, God said don't eat the fruit, but you know, it looks good. And you know, I can think of a really good reason why I should. Don't be deceived. Listen to God and trust him. If you need to repent of your sins, if you need to come to Christ in the first place, put him on in baptism. Come forward right now as we stand and sing. Someday you'll stand at the bar on time. Someday your record you'll see. Someday you'll answer the question of life. What will your answer be? What will it be? What will it be? Where will you spend your eternity? What will it be? Oh, what will it be? What will your answer be? Sadly, you'll stand if you're unprepared. Trembling, you'll fall on your knee. Facing the sentence of life or of death. What will that sentence be? What will it be? What will it be? Where will you spend your eternity? What will it be? Oh, what will it be? What will your answer be? Now is the time to prepare, my friend. Make your soul spotless and free. Washed in the blood of the crucified one, he will your answer be. What will it be? What will it be? Where will you spend your eternity? What will it be? Oh, what will it be? What will your answer be?